This is the word of the Lord from Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Amen. Good job, daughter of mine. Good morning, church family. How are you guys doing? You guys good? Is everyone warm enough? Uh, heat on, your power on. I heard some talk of people, if you need maybe to charge your devices or stay warm for a little bit this afternoon. Actually, I think one of the members of our church was maybe going to stick around this afternoon. So come find me or talk to somebody if you need a, just need a place to, with some Wi-Fi or a, I don't know, you have to watch the Seahawks somewhere, I guess. You can put it up on the screens or something, but come find me afterwards. Hey, really quickly, before we dive into the text for today, so encouraging to see that video and that update from Mexico. Um, Pastor Doug has been kind of spearheading these efforts for our church since maybe, oh, about 2016 or so, I think 16 or 17, and has been helping to, to lead these mission trips. And actually, when he first became one of the elders of the church, he was telling me about how he's been leading these trips to this place, and he started describing it, and it's an orphanage, and they care for kids, and they've started a school, and they do this or that. He started just describing it, and he said to me, he goes, it's in this really tiny little village on the, you know, that no one's ever heard of and no one's ever been to before. And I interrupted him. I said, Vicente Guerrero in the Baja? And he goes, how in the heck did you know that? And I said, my family went there for like years when I was a teenager. My parents led trips there. And actually, when I was 17 years old, Aaron Lynn tagged along with us too. And we, we, my dad and I poured the concrete for the footings for the clinic. And so it was kind of this cool like connection thing. And actually every year, whenever we send a team there, I always say, hey, is the clinic still standing? And every year they come back, yep. I was like, okay, whew, off the hook for one more year. But um, one of the things I really love about a mission trip like that, yes, some people go to a place like Vicente Guerrero and you just, you fall in love with that city or that region or you fall in love with those people. And I've actually seen people that have ended up like moving there to be a part of the work that God's doing there. But the other thing that I see is people go and they have their hearts just like set on fire for the idea of reaching the lost for Jesus. And how many of you know, you don't need to go to Mexico to find people that don't know Jesus. You can literally walk out your front door and you can walk over to your neighbor's house and you can share the love of Jesus and the good news of the gospel with them. And so my hope and my prayer is that the 18 people that went and came back would bring some of that fire with them and that we would, as a church, seek to live on mission every single day in greater and greater capacity. And I'm hoping, here's one thing I'm hoping, this is all free of charge. I'm not charging you for any of this. This is free. Uh, the, one of the things I'm hoping as we start working on some signage stuff in the building here over the next few weeks and months is there was a church that I knew of when I lived down in Tacoma and on the way out the door, they had this sign over the door that said, you are now entering the mission field. And I'm hoping and praying that I'm gonna print one of those up and we're gonna stick it on the doors as you leave here because every Sunday we gather for worship, we're shaped by the gospel, we, we come to know Jesus and be more like Jesus and then we leave to go live on mission every day. Amen? All right, end of other rant and discussion. The book of Jude, 
We are in the book of Jude for a short three weeks. Uh, you'll, you'll notice that the background images are really dreary. It comes from the text. It comes from verses 12 and 13. There's these false teachers who are waterless clouds, dead trees, foaming wild waves, and dead black wandering stars. And I think that it's perfect because it's fall and it's cold <laughs> And it's raining, and there's false teachers, and the power's out, and just just November, and then it'll be Christmas soon, and we'll all be happy again. So anyways, let's just (laughs) embrace it for a few weeks. Let's embrace it for a few weeks, and let's dive into the book of Jude. And I just, before we do anything else, I want to pray again, and let's bring our cold, dark, frozen hearts before the Lord, and ask him to minister uh, the, 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 the goodness of his love. Will you pray with me? Let's join together. Lord, there's a lot of things... A lot of things competing for our attention. A lot of things that would weigh on our hearts. Lord, just in this room, there is sickness and cancer. Lord, in this room, there's financial struggle. Lord, in this room, there is uh, fears about the power being out and the storms and the weather. Lord, some of us might be stressed out about the upcoming elections and the political turmoil and the conversations at the office or the conversations with family members. Lord, whatever is going on in our hearts right now, our weary, restless hearts, we bring them to you and we ask for your grace. Lord, help me to teach well only that which is in line with the truth of your word and give every single one of us a receptive heart that we might drink deeply of the gospel of Jesus today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let me start with a question. How do you get someone to do what you want? All you parents are like, I'm listening. Like, how do you, how do you get someone to act? How do you get someone to think about this? I'm, I'm not talking about like a manipulative sort of thing. I'm just talking about leadership, right? A place of influence. You're a parent. You want your kid to act or to behave in a certain way. Or maybe in your job, you have a position of authority or leadership. You're a boss and you want to you get somebody to act. You want to get somebody to do something. You could ask them, yeah. You could just tell them what you want. There's a couple, couple techniques come to mind. One technique is what I'm just going to call the, the reason with them approach, right? Hey, let me sit you down. Let me talk to you. Let me explain to you. You should do this. And if you do that, it'll go well. And if you don't do that, it'll go bad for you. And you should just do this then. And how many of you have ever tried that with your kids? does not work. Not once has it ever happened. Oh, well, thank you, parent dearest, for explaining to me this such logical thing. I, I now see kids don't have logic. They literally don't have, their brains don't work uh, by, like, science. So, uh, you can reason with people, okay? Here's something that works a little bit better. You can scare them. You can just terrify them. You can say, hey, and, and okay, obviously there's like a bad way to use fear, but actually there's a good place, right? If parents or, 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 you know, any sort of leadership, say, hey, don't run out in the street, it's dangerous. Bad things could happen. There's a, there's a good place for the use of fear here and there. Yesterday afternoon, our power was out, and the sun came out for like two minutes. And our motto in our household is, if the sun is out, get out and go for a walk quick. So we got outside, we started walking, and it did that weird thing where it was sunny, and then it started pouring rain on us. And we're like, well, this is stupid. Let's go home. But as we were walking around our block, we came to one of our neighbor's houses, and it's like the power lines are like down in their yard. And it's Dane, me and Aaron Lynn are walking. We have our youngest daughter with us. We're like, hey, look at that. Do not go near that. That is dangerous. Do not go 
near those power lines. Like, I don't know, you know, if they're live or what's going on, but just stay away, right? You, a good, healthy place of fear at times for things that are legitimately dangerous. The other thing that you can do, especially as a parent, is you can appeal to their heart and who they are. You can say, hey, I know who you are. This is who you are. This is who I want you to be. Let's not do this thing. Let's do this other thing instead. Last Sunday, I was watching uh, the Seahawks game. Great game. Sorry, uh, any Giants fans in the room. Uh, great game. And the Seahawks have a wide receiver, if you're not a fan, the wide receiver named Tyler Lockett. He's been with the team for a long time, longest, longest running uh, you know, Seahawks player. He's really, really good. But he had just an awful game last week. He caught a pass and then he fumbled it and it gave the Giants a touchdown like right the very next play. He had another play where he was running and he's like looking over. He, I mean, he was in the end zone ready to catch a touchdown pass and the ball just like doink off of his face mask and he completely missed it. It was just awful. He was playing so poorly and the cameras and the TV crew shows him. He goes and he sits on the bench and he's kind of just there and he's kind of got his hangdog head and he's just kind of, and I watched Pete Carroll, who, Pete Carroll is so energetic and optimistic. He makes me look like, you know, like a Debbie Downer or something. And Pete, Pete Carroll goes over to Tyler and the camera's showing Pete Carroll. And he's, he's just in Tyler's ear and he's just jawing. Pete Carroll is the oldest cheerleader in the NFL. And he's, he's jawing at, at Tyler Lockett. And he's just getting on him. And, and then within like a few minutes, Tyler Lockett, almost exact same play, running down the right uh, end. And he, the, you know, the Geno Smith pass, he catches it, touchdown, take the lead, win the game and Tyler's now gone from goat to hero just like that. And then the post-game uh, press conference, they asked Pete Carroll, what, what did you say to Tyler Lockett? What did you say to Tyler Lockett? Now, Pete Carroll did not reason with Tyler Lockett. Listen, see, if you catch the ball and score the touchdown, <laughs> then we would have more points to the other team and we would win and that would be good, right? And he didn't, he didn't scare him. He didn't terrify him. He didn't say, listen, you, you're going to be remembered. This is the worst game you've ever played, you idiot. Is that he wants Sports Center to talk about you? He didn't terrify him. He didn't scare him. Do you know what Coach Carroll said? He said, I leaned down. I told him, you're the best wide receiver in this league. We trust you. Go catch the ball. And it just made me just delighted because like, that's such great leadership. It's such great inspiration to say, I know who you are. I want you to do this thing, but I'm going to start with telling you who you are. Now, the book of Jude, this very short letter, Jude wants his audience to do something. He is trying to compel them to act. There are false teachers. They're spreading lies about the gospel of Jesus. And Jude wants his, his hearers to have nothing to do with them. Now, at the end of the letter, he is going to do a little bit of reasoning. He's going to do some rational reasoning. Hey, do this. Don't do that. Here's why. In the middle of the letter, which we're going to address next week, he does do some scaring. He says, these are bad people. Stay away from them. There is danger here. But where he starts, the place that Jude begins is telling these people who they are in Christ. Reminding them of their identity. And so the big idea that I want to communicate today, excuse me, is this. Knowing who you are leads to knowing what to do. Or if I could shorten it down to even shorter and, and hopefully punchier, even more memorable. Identity before behavior. Identity first, then behavior. Okay? So let's talk about Jude. Let me do a little introduction here, okay? Jude, verse 1. Jude, 
a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who are called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And then he goes on, dear friends. Okay, who is Jude? Who is this Jude? A couple things you should know. First of all, Jude in this time and in this part of the world is a very common name, right? This is an extremely common name. And actually, it's the name Judah. In the text, it's Judah. And there's so many Judahs in the New Testament that sometimes you see Judah, you see Judas, like Judas Iscariot and the other disciple named Judas. Jude, uh, it's just an English Bible translation thing. It's, it's not Jude, it's Judah. They just change it, they shorten it to try to keep all the different Judahs straight. Or even the land of Judea, right? It's these different versions of the same name. Think like, you know, James, Jim, Jimmy, or, you know, Timothy, Timmy, Tim. It's that kind of a thing. Uh, so his name is actually Judah, like the patriarch, like the tribe, like one of the sons of Israel. Uh, some of you are thinking, oh, is this Judah Barsabbas from Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 23? Uh, no, the answer is no, it's not him, okay? Uh, I know that was probably keeping you up last night. I'm happy to tell you no. Uh, that's a Judah that is mentioned, and it's actually Barsabbas is given to kind of clarify that it's probably not this other Judah. And in Acts 15, it doesn't say the same thing that he said, that's a brother of James. James is a, a, a very noteworthy leader in the early Christian movement. It's also very likely not one of the 12. In Luke chapter 6, verse 16, when we're getting the list of all of Jesus' 12 apostles, there are actually two that are named Judas. Did you know that Jesus had two disciples named Judas? There was Judas Iscariot, the one that we all know is the one that betrayed, and then there's the other Judas who changed his name to Frank, uh, just to be disassociated with that other one. Uh, it says that the Judas, not Iscariot, is Judas the son of James, not the brother of James. James is also a really common name in the first century, and this is a son of someone named James, not the brother of someone named James. So it is likely a different Jude. Lastly, we see that he says that he's the brother of James, which would lead us, based on Matthew 13, 55, to say this is actually uh, Judah, the brother of James, and the brother of Jesus himself. Technically a half-brother. Because... Jesus had a different dad. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll address it during Christmas. It's called the virgin birth, okay? The brother of, of James and the brother of Jesus himself. Side note. Can I give you a side note? There are many side notes today. This is one side note. Every time you see James, the name James in your New Testament, it is actually the Hebrew name Jacob. I know. I was shocked when I found out too. There's an urban legend. Urban legend says that King James of the King James translation wanted his name to be in the Bible. So he went through, and when the translators were doing the King James, that he went through and said, just change all the Jacobses to Jameses. That is an urban legend. It is not true. King James is off the hook. How did it become then that Jacob, why don't we just put Jacob? Why is it James in our English translations? I'm so glad you asked because I, I know this isn't really important, but it's nerdy and it's fun, okay? Is it okay to have some fun in church? Is it okay to have linguistics fun in church? Yes, it is. Jacob, or Yaakov in Hebrew, 
is then transliterated in the Greek to Iakabas, Iakabas, which then goes into Latin as Jacobus. So instead of ye, it's je, because certain things in languages often will change. So ye becomes je. So in, in, in Latin, it's Jacobus. And then somebody didn't like the B. Instead of b, it was Jacobus, 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 Jacobus. That's where the M comes from. And then when it went from Latin in the Romantic language into French, it's always the French that messed it up. It became Jemes. So instead of Jacobus, Jacobus, it's Jemes. They just got rid of the K in there and they just Jemes. They didn't have time to pronounce all the syllables. And then after the invasion of France into England in 1066, that's when it became James in your English translations. Okay. Things that actually matter. Tom Schreiner, who's a Bible scholar, says this about the author. He says, this designation points to a Jude who is well-known and to a James who is well-known. That's why he says Jude, the brother of James. These are both well-known men in the Christian community. The author felt no need to identify himself further, suggesting a well-established reputation in the community. If we examine others with the name Jude... In early Christianity, it is clear that no other candidate fits the authorship of this letter. He was one of the four brothers of Jesus. Go read Matthew 13, James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon. The evidence we have suggests that Jude did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah during his earthly ministry. You guys remember the, 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 the stories in the New Testament where Jesus' mother and brothers and family come and say, Jesus, you are talking crazy talk. And they're trying to convince him to stop the claims. Jude would have likely been one of those going out. Say, Please stop it. You're embarrassing yourself and the family. But he likely became a believer after the resurrection since Acts 1.14 says that the Lord's brothers were part of the prayer meetings prior to Pentecost. And then we learn from 1 Corinthians 9 that the Lord's brothers went on missionary trips. And Jude was probably included here. His missionary work would explain his writing to the church in an authoritative manner. Can you just, just for a moment, wrap your head around the idea of coming to believe that your own half-brother was indeed the promised Messiah of God? And can you believe that nearly 2,000 years later, we have this letter that the half-brother of Jesus of Nazareth himself wrote down? It's just so cool. God's sovereignty is so cool. He's orchestrating all these things for our benefit. All right, who's the audience? That's the author. Who's the audience? So go back to the verse. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are the cold, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Kind of a standard greeting at the beginning. And then, dear friends, uh, what's missing? All these other New Testament letters say things like, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Rome, to the church in Ephesus. No one specific is mentioned here. So at the end of the day, we don't really know who this letter was addressed to. We have a couple of clues that I think help us know who he's writing to. The, 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 many scholars believe that his audience was very likely Jewish. That he's not writing to a church out in the Gentile world. He's writing to a church that's in Israel, possibly even in Jerusalem. The reason is there are a lot of Jewish themes and Jewish references within this book. When Jude goes to describe the false teachers, he's going to pull out like almost every single bad guy from the Old Testament and compare these false teachers to them. 
In fact, he's even going to reach into some what we would call extra uh, literature, uh, apocryphal literature. He's going to reach into those books as well and reference some other things from those books. It's all just very, very, very Jewish. And it is likely one specific church because it seems like he is addressing a very specific set of circumstances here. You know, um, Peter, when Peter wrote, uh, in first Peter, his, his first letter, he writes to the churches that are dispersed all over Asia Minor, Turkey. Um, he's intentionally writing a letter that's like, hey, you know, circle this one around, pass it on. There's nothing like that here in Jude. It's just, hey, I'm writing to you. I wanted to write you this letter. I'm going to write you this other letter. couple things real quick. Okay, here's, here's one more sidebar. I promise this is the last sidebar. The relationship with Jude and some of these other writings. Here's something interesting that you should know. Jude has 12 of its 25 verses that are also referenced in the letter called 2 Peter. Jude and 2 Peter are like really, really similar. And it leads uh, scholars to come up with different theories. Did they have a shared source? Did one borrow from the other? Did, maybe it was just a miraculous thing and they just happened to accidentally kind of write the same letter together. I don't think that's in keeping with what we know of how God, you know, works through human inspiration. My personal theory is that Second Peter, Peter borrowed from Jude. But if you want to read more, I have linked a bunch of different blog posts and commentaries. It's all up on the church's website. Go read the literary relationship between 2 Peter and Jude and be the most popular person at your community group this upcoming week, okay? The other portion, though, about Jude that's interesting from just a textual standpoint is Jude quotes from what we would call the Apocrypha. These are, these are extra-biblical Jewish writings that kind of happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of the books that he quotes is called the book of First Enoch, and the other book that he quotes from, directly quotes from, is called The Assumption of Moses. Now, these are books that were extremely popular around the time of Jesus and the apostles. They're Jewish writings. They're apocalyptic. They're very imaginative. The book of First Enoch, in particular, is really imaginative. But they're not scripture. And that stresses some people out. Some people say, well, if... If Jude, that is authoritative canonical scripture, is quoting Enoch or the Assumption of Moses, well, then maybe those should be elevated to canonical scripture as well. Others would say, well, if, if Jude is quoting these non-canonical books, maybe we need to rip Jude out of our Bibles and not even have it in our New Testament. And I, I would just simply say, that's overcomplicating the issue. Is first Enoch inspired scripture? No. The witness of the Spirit and church history say, no, this is not canon. But you know what is? Jude quoting First Enoch. That is inspired scripture. And First Enoch, or the Assumption of Moses, they're not authoritative scripture, but you know what they are? They're really helpful. They're really helpful historical books to help us understand the world that Jesus and the apostles were inhabiting because these were really, really popular books. Really popular, really influential. It'd be like me quoting C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. It's really popular. Or me quoting, you know, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Does that make it authoritative scripture? This is not a trick question. No. Do not pray to Aslan. It's just silly, okay? 
but it can be helpful, really popular, really insightful, just something that could be kind of helpful for us to see. So that's a sidebar on some of these other writings. What is the occasion? What is going on that Jude feels like he needs to write? Verse three, he said, although I was eager to write to you about this salvation we share, I found it necessary to write a a different letter. I had one letter in mind, but now I have to change course, right? It's like when you as a parent, you're like, well, I was gonna take you out for ice cream, but now we're gonna have to go clean your room because you didn't do it, right? It's that kind of a thing. I found it necessary to write, appealing to you, I'm appealing to you, I'm begging you to contend, fight for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. For here's what's going on. Some people, these are not good people. These are people who were designated for judgment a long time ago, have snuck in. They've crept in by stealth. They are ungodly. They are turning the grace, the grace of God into sensuality, and they're denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. See, what Jude starts with, he says, there's this faith there's this, there's this really important message, this thing that we believe, this thing that we know, and it's, it's being compromised. What is, what is this faith about? What is it that Jude says this faith is about? He says, first of all, this faith is about salvation through grace. He said, I wanted to write to you about this salvation that we all share. Friends, how many of you know that on our own, we need to be saved, On our own, we are sinful. On our own, we are foolish. On our own, we get ourselves into all sorts of problems and and challenges. And ultimately, before the Lord, we are deserving of his wrath and his judgment. We need to be saved. And that salvation comes as grace. It comes as a gift. The word in Greek is charis. It's a gift that it is not through any efforts of our own. It is not through any works that we do that God simply decides to give us his grace and his salvation. This is good news, right? And he says that this this faith is not just about you on your own. It's about a community of people. He says it's this salvation that we share. As Pastor Steve was talking about earlier, that we're not just saved and forgiven of our sins and kind of put on a shelf somewhere by ourselves. No, we're invited into a family and a community that we can walk together. The family of God, the, the body of Christ, the church, the called out ones. And Jude says, this is about uh, 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 our eternal destiny. This is not just a faith about like, you know, how to live your best life now or how to, how to have a peace in your spirit and your heart for today. Th- those things might come to us, but ultimately this is about a, a, a judgment that awaits these false teachers or if you look ahead into verse 21, about eternal life that is being offered to us because of Jesus, his, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. He rose from the dead and he says, one day you too, like me, will rise from the dead. This is not just about a feel-good Sunday. This is about where will you spend eternity? And lastly, Jude is saying this is about Jesus, the King. He calls him the Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Anointed ones are the kings. King. And then he calls him master and he calls him Lord. Who does Jude think is in charge? Jesus. Jude says, this is about you saying there's salvation, there's a gift, there's a people, there's an eternal life. And in order to access that, I am going to bow my knee before Jesus as the king. He's the boss of me. Jesus is the boss of me. Hey friends, I got some good news for you. It does not matter 
who wins the Senate or the House in the elections two days from now, Jesus is still going to be the king. And he's still going to be the boss of me. And it doesn't matter what, uh, uh, what pressures come in life, what, what people tell you, what, what anybody else says, Jesus is king. And if you are a Christian, you are saying, he is the Lord of my life. He's not just my savior. He's the boss. He's the one that's in charge. That's what Jude is saying. Jesus is in charge. He's offering you grace, forgiveness, and eternal life. He's offering you a family and a people to belong to. Bow the knee. Now, who are these false teachers? We're going to spend the bulk of our time next week uh, unpacking the false teachers, but I, I want to just give you a little highlight really quickly here, okay? Um, these false teachers, this is not about just ignorance. How many of you know that you don't know everything? Okay? Not me or any other pastor or anyone who ever stands up here to preach the Bible should ever give off the impression that I've got it all figured out. You don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. In our journey as followers of Jesus, we're always learning. We're always growing. There's things we don't know. That's not what's going on here in Jude. He says these are ungodly, wicked people who are destined for destruction. So this isn't just about, hey, you know, good-hearted followers of Jesus trying to learn more or better theology. No, it's not about that. He, it's also not about like an honest discussion. It's not about an honest discussion. He says they've snuck in through stealth. They're intentionally coming in in deceptive and divisive ways. You know, you go to your community group or you're hanging out with some friends. Sometimes we, we, we talk about the Bible like, hey, I, I think this, or I see this passage this way, or I see this verse that way. That's all well and good. That's not what's going on here in Jude. It's not about, hey, let's, let's interpret the scriptures together. Let's come in. It's like Rabbi Matt would always say, you know, when you, when you get three Jewish people together and ask their opinion on any particular scripture, you have four opinions that come out of the three. Like, like that's just how it is sometimes, following Jesus. We're just kind of wrestling with these things. But again, that's not what's happening here. These are intentionally stealthy, divisive people. Jude says that for these false teachers, it's about the flesh. Did you notice how he said they're turning the grace of God into sensuality. It's about the desires of the body. We're going to unpack this more again next week. I've said it, I'll say it again. But just so much of apostasy and people falling away from following Jesus as Lord is about who they want to sleep with. So much apostasy is just about the flesh and sexual desire. It was happening 2,000 years ago. It happens today. And then lastly, it is about denying Jesus. This is a gospel issue. This is a, if you get it wrong, you do not have eternal life and salvation. This is of serious importance. Now, two weeks from now, we're going to see how Jude kind of reasons with the people, right? The rational, logical, hey, let me instruct you, let me teach you, right? Next week, Jude is going to scare the people. Do not hang out with these people. They are bad dudes. They're Cain. They're Balaam. They're Satan. He, I mean, he just does not pull his punches. But remember, where does Jude start? Jude, verse 1, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. I want you to say these words with me. To those who are the called. To those who are loved. And to those who are kept. 
Let's just spend a few minutes on each of those words. What does it mean to be called? What does it mean to be called? In the, in the very, very first verses of the Bible, God starts creating, and what is the manner, what is the, what is the technique that God uses to create the heavens and the earth? He speaks. And that's different from almost any other ancient creation story. It usually involves some sort of battle and, you know, their limb gets lopped off and it falls off and turns into the earth or something like that. It's, it's, so, it's just, they're weird, okay? In the Bible, God speaks and he says, this is day and here's what it's for. And this is night and here's what it's for. And this is a star and here's a bunch of stars and here's what they're going to do. And here's humanity, and they're going to image me. God speaks, and he names, and he calls all things into creation. And actually, as you read the Bible, you see that the way that, um, back then, even the way that parents named their children, it had meaning, it had importance. You didn't just pick a name because it sounded nice. You, you would actually pick a name that actually had some meaning to it. What does it mean to be called if not that we have an identity and we have a purpose? And I would say this. I would say that within every human being is this deep need to know who we are and what we're doing. How many of you have ever asked yourself the question, what am I doing? What am I here for? What's my purpose? Throughout human history, you can look at different ways that different societies would do that. Actually, think about the word calling. Think about the word vocation. Vocation comes from the Latin root word of vocal, like vocalization, vocation. It's calling. What's my purpose? A lot of cultures, there was a lot more standard, you know, boxes that you would fit into. Oh, you're a woman? You're any sort of woman? Cool, mother. Oh, you're a man? Well, what kind of job did your dad do? Great, do that. That's who you are. That's your purpose. Now, in our society, and in our culture, we have swung the pendulum to the opposite extreme, and we have said your identity and your purpose is anything that you decide that it should be. You are in charge of you. You name you. You define you. You say who you are and what your purpose is on planet Earth. And friends, I would submit to you that we are drowning in purposelessness. I've referenced this before, but I went and dug up the quote, because it's a really important quote from a very, very famous American theologian, uh, Taylor Swift. And she, she gave a speech at a graduation ceremony a few months back. And she's speaking to these college graduates and she's trying to inspire them with their sense of identity and purpose. And she accidentally stumbles on something that is very profound. She says this. She says, we're so many things all the time. And I know it can be really overwhelming. Figuring out who to be and when and who you are now and how to act to get where you want to go. She says, Here's her, I have some good news. Here's her gospel. 
It's totally up to you. But then in a moment of salience, she goes, I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. So her gospel, I'm not trying to pick on Taylor Swift. She's a genius. Put some respect on her name, okay? She's a genius at marketing herself, is what she is. But she's on to something here. Our society says your identity and your purpose, your calling, is whatever the heck you want it to be. Yay, freedom! Five minutes later, crushing weight. What Jude says is to remind us that we were created by a God who knows us, who created us with a specific purpose. You have identity as an image bearer of God. You have a purpose to reflect his goodness throughout the world. And now in the age of redemption, in the age of the Messiah, you have an even further purpose, which is to go into the world and make disciples to go help people come to know the good news of the gospel of Jesus. You don't have to figure out your whole identity yourself. You've, I would even say you can't. You know why? Because you're inside you. And God is above all things. And he created you. You're called. You're named. You're known. And you are loved. Loved by God the Father. And what is love? Love, defining love can be really hard. It can be really hard, right? Like, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me, right? Like, how, like how do you, I swore I wouldn't do that. I did it at the nine o'clock. I swore I wouldn't do it here. I'll fix it for the five o'clock service tonight. There is no five o'clock service. Uh, it can be, you know, defining love can be really difficult, but I, I feel like the, the, one of the best ways we can talk about love is just the idea of being connected, and you think about the way we talk about love, right? Like, I love, you know, I, I love Taylor Swift. Well, you don't actually know her. You admire her. Some of you do not love Taylor Swift, and that's okay. Uh, but just using that as an analogy, the way we talk about it, I love this, or I love that. But really, to, to genuinely walk in a relationship of love means that you are connected with somebody. You're near them. You're close to them. One of the things that... Um, preaching through the book of Leviticus over the last few months, the, the biggest impact it had on me was just all of this language of God wanting to be near to his people. Moves and sets up the tabernacle. I will walk among you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And then you think about Jesus coming in that most holy place that only the high priest could go. When Jesus died, what happened? That curtain was ripped in half. And the spirit is now poured out. And God is saying, like, I'm, I'm as close to you I'm as connected to you as the very breath in your lungs. We have direct access to God. We have direct access to the most connected we could ever be. And when we don't believe that, we turn to other loves. It is no accident that Jude said, yeah, they keep going to sensuality. Because when you don't believe that you're loved... You're going to go search for love. You're going to go search for that connection somewhere. Find me somebody to love. Is that Fleetwood Mac, right? Is that, one, is that right, Ken? Did I get that? Won't you want somebody to love? Please find me somebody to love. Who is it? That's not Fleetwood Mac? No, that's a different song. 
Find me somebody to love. That's, that's Queen. I know what Queen is. There's another 70s song. Don't you want somebody to love? Don't you need some? Who is that? Jefferson Airplane. Thank you. All right. The service can end now. We can all go home. We can sleep. The point is, God is the only one that can truly satisfy that longing in your heart for love and connection. And so Jude reminds his hearers right at the beginning, you're loved. You've got purpose. You are loved. And then he says, you're kept. Kept. Hold on to, kept, safe, secure. How do you know you're going to make it to the end? How do you know you're going to reach the end? How do you know that you're not going to go off the path and and become an apostate like, like one of these people that Jude is warning of? He says, because you are kept by Jesus. Jesus has a very strong grip. And actually, it is in his strong grip of grace that we find our ultimate freedom. You're kept by Jesus. That need for safety, that need for security. If we don't seek it in Jesus, we're going to seek it in money or possessions or power or self-worth, self-sufficiency. I don't need anybody to keep me safe. I keep me safe. And Judah said, you're so safe. In Christ, we have a calling. We have purpose and identity. We've been adopted by God. We've been named with his family name. In Christ, we are loved and connected to God. We have the spirit poured out into our very selves. You could not be more connected. Not, actually, not only to God, but the dear friends and the common salvation. You're connected to this family as well. And then in Christ, we are eternally and perfectly and completely safe. What's the worst that could happen to you? You die, you spend eternity in the presence of a loving God. You are completely loved. You are completely safe. You have purpose in Jesus. And so I want to close today with just a statement. Not going to be a very application-heavy sermon today. I want you to take some time this week and ponder this statement If your identity is not grounded in Jesus, you will seek purpose, love, and safety from lesser, even dangerous sources. That's what's going on here in this letter. If these people really knew that they were called, if they really believed that they were loved, if they really thought that they were safe and kept by Jesus, they would not be tempted by whatever the false teachers are peddling. Who's peddling something that you're buying? I encourage you this week to carve out some time. Pastor Steve was encouraging us in silence and solitude. Get yourself a half hour where you can just get quiet. And you can ask yourself this question. Where am I seeking purpose? What what makes me feel loved? How do I know that I'm safe? And then ask the Lord Jesus Christ to meet you in that moment 
and remind you of who you are in him. If you're here today and you do not yet know the salvation that Jude is talking about, there's so much grace for you here today. There's so much love to be had. There's so much safety in him. Don't wait another minute. Give your life to Jesus. Let him show you your purpose and meaning. Let him fill your heart with his love and let him keep you safe for all of eternity. And as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord now, I invite you to even begin asking yourself that question right now and remind yourself that you are called and loved and kept. Lord, help us to know who we are Help us to not put all that pressure on ourselves to define ourselves and to you know, fill up our desire for love on our own and to keep ourselves safe. Lord, we have all of that in you. Lord, would you forgive us for those times that we forget who we are? Would you remind us more deeply now in this moment of who we are? And as we eat and as we drink, would we be nourished with the gospel of grace? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.